So, uh, last week did a talk on working with obsessive, repetitive, intrusive thoughts. And we talked about a bunch of tools that um, people can employ to reduce uh, the symptoms. But tonight we're going to talk a little bit about one of the underlying psychological factors and uh, which requires an entirely different approach to uh, to working with. So uh, to start off, we come to meditation for very often the exact same reason why people come to therapy, which is very often we're unable to manage our emotions in certain contexts. We're prone to spiraling intrusive thoughts, uh, chronic stress. Very often it's difficult for us to pursue really meaningful goals or to unearth a foundation of purpose in life. And all of these struggles have in common that one, they're difficult to address, and uh, two, the reason they are difficult to address is because the causes or the factors involve are buried networks that are uh, inaccessible to conscious control. So for example, you can change somebody's belief very easily. You can, you can tell somebody how to, uh, or train somebody how to use a new computer. But when it comes to something like, for example, panic attacks, um, you can tell them, well, there's no need to be uh, nervous speaking in front of a large group of people. There's no reason to be worried driving under tunnels or being stuck in an elevator or whatever. Uh, and reasoning and logic are going to have absolutely no effect whatsoever because the underlying factors that generate a panic attack are essentially implicit systems stored in pre-conscious regions of the brain, very often associated with regions that are uh, wholly beyond any conscious control. Um, very often areas such as the right midbrain and other parts of the uh, right hemisphere are not really uh, capable of being, you can, no matter how much willpower you have, you can't change the emotional state you're in or the mood you're in. So one of the major factors that underlie uh, obsessive thought and many, many other issues that we'll be talking about is uh, core shame. Core shame is kind of one of my main themes for this year. I never do any happy themes, it seems. I don't know. <laughs> They're always things like abandonment, terror. <laughs> Core shame is uh, a, uh, a term that's over maybe the last 15, 20 years has gotten a lot greater use in clinical uh, settings. To understand what it is, I'm going to first talk about what appropriate guilt is so that we can contrast it with 
uh, core shame. So appropriate guilt is a fully adaptive, healthy uh, sense of remorse that follows an action that we don't feel good about, an action that is um, uh, in some way harmful or uh, violates a very basic social code. When we feel appropriate guilt, in no way do we have a global sense that I'm a failure, there's something wrong with me, I'm a loser, I'm unlovable. We just have a sense that the action creates that sense of what the Buddha called samwega, which is that, that physical kind of, I wish I hadn't have said that, that was, har that was hurtful, or uh, that probably, you know, uh, wasn't very skillful. Um, it's very, very healthy to have appropriate guilt. It is um, uh, a developmental achievement in a developing a sense of belonging. Um, to, it's the desire to be worthy of a tribe that we belong to that creates appropriate guilt. So essentially, uh, installed by evolution, we have, uh, by natural selection, region of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, according to Lieberman and Eisenberger, are the, is the hub of that sense of, oh, I can't believe I did that, what the fuck? But uh, when, that, when that circuit has been fine-tuned in a, in a useful, adaptive way, it's just limited to specific actions. It doesn't become a globalized sense of, oh, I suck. It just becomes, oh, I wish I hadn't have acted out on that. I wish I hadn't have done that. Now, core shame is the exact opposite. It doesn't have anything to do with specific actions. It has to do with a global sense of there's something unlovable, there's something unlikable, there's something deep in me that uh, leads other people to abandon me or... Um, uh, is not good enough. So somebody with appropriate guilt can do a bunch of, make, can make a bunch of mistakes and they'll feel a sense of remorse for those mistakes, but they won't have any lowering of their sense of self. Their sense of self-worth, their sense of self-esteem will not take a hit. They just will have to you know, apologize or acknowledge that they've made a sense of misjudgments. But somebody who's got core shame can do nothing but wonderful, altruistic, kind actions, and it won't make any difference because they'll still have this flawed sense of a, their core self is broken or unlovable or is in some way uh, damaged. So what causes this core shame? Well... In early life, a child that experiences uh, either unreliable attachment or experiences uh, surprising, out of the blue experiences of neglect, abuse, uh, shaming, criticism, the only way, or the just unavailability, suddenly, the child will 
explain what's going on in the only way that child can. She'll believe that there must be something wrong with me. Why else is it that my father suddenly has disappeared? And even though the parent might say, well, you're, you know, your father and I have gotten divorced, that's why he's no longer around, uh, very often if there's not enough soothing and enough regularity in the arrangement, uh, the child will just interpret it as there's something wrong with me. Um, another way of understanding it is that in the first year of life, most babies get a lot of secure care, love, attunement. They feel very uh, uh, taken care of. In the second year of life, the child starts to hear the words, no, stop, for the love of God, don't do that, at 200 times a day. So in the first year of life, the child never heard its name being used in conjunction with all the positive attention it got. But in the second year, as the child starts to begin to have a sense of a nascent identity in a self, and it's associated with its name, the first times it really hears its name is in conjunction with stop, don't, freeze, what are you doing? Um, and what that does is it links the child's name with a sudden freeze state, because when the child's in explore mode, the child is you know, wandering around, it feels securely loved and connected, it's investigating the world around it, but when the parent suddenly, or the guardian suddenly says, stop, stop, don't run. The child freezes and goes into, from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic shutdown, and their bodies become tense and their heads hang, and very often they start to associate their name, their self, their identity, with that negative physiological state. Now, if the parents know how to repair, is the term that they use in developmental psychology, that the parent knows how to repair the, that uh, and knows how to attune to the child and say, it's okay, I love you, but you know, when you run towards the street, that it makes me frightened, it makes your mom frightened, and I want, to be, I want you to feel safe, and I want us to be um, closer together, then that uncouples the linkage between the child's identity and that freeze, that negative physiological state. But if that doesn't happen enough, if the parent is overstressed, if there's too many siblings, if the parent doesn't, uh, or guardian doesn't know how to repair, then what happens is the child begins to link its name and its identity with that negative physical state. And that continues as the child grows. So, um, am, I sa am, am I safe to explore is the fundamental question that most children are asking when they look at their parent. They don't actually say that, but that's the key question. But when a child receives enough emotional disconnections, the question is now, am I lovable? Or am I lovable to you right now? And the answer is often, unfortunately, no. So, in Buddhism, the idea of a core self is a complex one. In many, many, many suttas, the Buddha denies that there is any such a thing as a, 
a foundational core lasting self. And in fact, that idea is associated with suffering. The Buddha often uses the idea that there's an underlying self. He compares it with a dog tied by a leash to a pole and that the dog runs around the pole and that, that that running around is just suffering. In many, many Buddhist concepts associate the idea of a core self, sakayatiti, and the sense of uh, who am I, an identity, uh, atava upadana, with suffering. But then elsewhere the Buddha says the exact opposite. So it's not really so clear cut. Because the Buddha also says that the self you construct is a foundation and it helps you make sense of your life. And where else could you make any sense or have a foundation in your life? Restraint of action and speech and thought are good, he says, because they protect yourself. And there's another wonderful sutta where the Buddha advises some young men he comes across who are racing around trying to find a thief. Uh, They want to beat up this thief who's stolen from them. And the Buddha says, instead of looking for a thief, you would be better off trying to find your course yourself. So the simple interpretation is that the Buddha didn't believe that there was any lasting nailed down self that doesn't change, but he did believe that there are fundamental aspects in the way we relate to ourselves that we have to take care of and that are important for our emotional health. Today, uh, most uh, psychologists that I uh, consider to be certainly the greats in the field um, have a sense that it's essential to have a sense of a self that is resilient and strong that we can rely on. When we have a positive sense of self, it's an organizing principle that allows us to make sense of life, which is filled with all these sensations and, and perceptions and, and interactions. And if we didn't have this sense of, of a sense of self-worth, self-esteem as a foundation, um, life would be overwhelming. There wouldn't be any organizing principle to help make sense of it. Even though studies show we use narrative, our inner chatter, as a way to try to make sense of life People who have a very damaged or fragile sense of who they are fail to come up with a coherent story. People who are um, in attachment the- uh, theory who um, are filed or are shown to be extremely disorganized really struggle to make sense and narrate in any way what's going on in the world. They can't, make, they can't parse. They can't figure out why things are happening. If you have a strong sense of self that's uh, a positive one, then you can withstand all the confusing, overwhelming, disappointing events and setbacks, and you can essentially know which experiences to weed out and say, well, okay, this is not indicative of the way the world is. Um, If you have a positive sense of self, you have confidence in your resilience to bounce back which is essential in life because God knows there's enough fucking setbacks just with uh, watching Kavanaugh wind up on the Supreme Court. I needed a lot of resilience. Self-agency 
is an utu, and that comes from a core sense of a positive sense of inner esteem. That's a sense that we can have a positive impact, that we're doing things to the world, not the world is always doing things to us. That I can do something positively for others. I'm not always just on the receiving end. People who have uh, uh, untreated borderline personality disorder, uh, narcissism tend to, well, not narcissism so much, borderlines tend to view everything as happening to them and they don't have any sense of their own role in experiences. And that's fundamentally due to a very damaged sense of, a, of, a, of self-worth. If we lack self-worth, um, it creates an enormous amount of obsessive spiraling thought. In the lack of that organizing principle of I'm someone of value, I'm someone who can achieve things that are worthwhile, uh, I'm lovable, I have integrity, then what happens is the inner chatter has to step in and do all that work that the self should be doing. And every time there's a negative experience or a setback, the inner chatter has to jump in and come up with an explanatory story, whereas a, a positive sense of self would just go, okay, well, that was fucked up. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's always going to be that way. I can withstand this, so, you know, fuck that person or fuck that situation. I'm just going to persevere. But if somebody doesn't have that sense of a core sense of a, a positive self-esteem, when they have a setback or they go through a breakup or um, a fractured interaction with someone, then they have no sense of resilience, very little sense of confidence, and they have to step in and try to figure it out and make sense of it, and they spiral out. Um, they find it very difficult to take risks, as none. there's no sense of confidence that's stably ingrained. They're easily, easily overwhelmed and stressed out. They constantly have to prove themselves worthy, because if you don't have an internal sense of um, self-worth, that then it's difficult to uh, feel that you know, confident in new jobs, new relationships, new situations. There's this constant sense of, I have to show that I deserve to be here. It creates imposter syndrome, a sense of being a fraud. Um, it makes it, people I've worked with who have core shame find it very, very painful to be alone. They'll very often, when they come home, if there's nobody there, they'll need to stay on their phone or on social media to create a sense that other people like them. Because if they're not with anybody, it recreates that early sense, that core shame of, I'm unlovable. Uh, people don't want to be with me. Um, it's very, very implicated in the work of Louis Casalino and others in anxiety disorders, extensive self-criticism, and catastrophizing, which is the tendency to always think of the absolute worst possible outcome, no matter how unlikely, and to carry it around in one's mind and to evaluate one's choices against this extremely unlikely, devastating outcome. So 
If you want to address underlying core shame, it's actually simpler than it sounds because at the fundamental root of it is the developmental failure to link up what's called one's self-representation, i.e. the way we think about ourselves, the, what, the image we have about ourselves in our mind, the, the name we have for ourselves, however we picture ourselves in our mind. That's known as the self-representation. We have to, if there's a failure to link that self-representation with what's known as positive affects, which is a fancy term for good sensory feelings in your body. If you walk by a mirror and you see your reflection and your first sense is, ah, and your body relaxes and you feel good about seeing yourself, then I don't know what you're doing here. This, this is then you probably have secure attachment and you probably are one of the 50% of the population that has it and that means you never have to work with me because all of my counseling I meet with people who um, didn't get that uh, as a developmental uh, marker, milestone. Um, if on the other hand one sees one's reflection in the mirror or in a photograph or somebody says our name or whatever and there's no feeling whatsoever then that translate that lack of affect that lack of feeling that lack of positive emotions translates to this underlying emotional belief that there's something missing not good enough there's something lacking in me the child who sees their reflection, their self-representation, and feels a sense of ease and strength in their body, from that physiological state, all of the emotions, and from all of the emotions comes all the thinking and the way we act and the confidence. So from that positive state emerges a sense of confidence, resilience, capability, agency, and so forth. So... Uh, essentially what we're working with here is what's called bottom-up, not top-down. You can't talk yourself into having uh, self-esteem, self-worth. You have to start it from the physiological way you relate to yourself. And then from that shame, that physiological shift, then self-confidence, agency, uh, 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 esteem and so forth emerges. I hope you're following me. Okay. So, um, and if somebody, when they see their reflection in the mirror, uh, feels disgust, which children very often who've been excess excessively abused, and um, very often that leads to uh, at times catastrophic emotional dysregulated states and depression and so forth. So the key in the work of recent uh, psychologists, Pat Ogden, uh, Diana Fosha, especially uh, Daniel uh, Brown and Sam Elliott at Harvard, has been to develop practices that link up one's self-representation with positive affect states, with great feelings in the body. If you can link up your sense of self with a sense of uh, physiological strength and ease, 
Then when you walk into unfamiliar situations or situations where in the past you felt you would be judged or rejected, if you're in that new underlying emotional state, that physical emotional state, then the behaviors will naturally be different than the behaviors we've had in the past. And there's a lot now of really exciting clinical research that backs this up. So in Buddhism, there was two meditations that really are very, very useful um, in conveying and developing this sense, linking the self-representation with uh, what a positive feeling in the body. And Brown and Elliot, in their research, uses a lot of these Buddhist, early Buddhist tools. So I'm sort of combined the early Buddhist practice of sila nusati, which is reflecting on one's highest uh, esteemable goals and um, uh, traits with some of the more modern therapeutic techniques. And there's four steps to it. And I'm going to just tell you what they are and then we're going to practice it together so that you can do this at home. The first is we visualize um, some self-related experience where we've, um, that reflects our deepest, most esteemable values. So there are times when we've been kind, altruistic, we've cared for animals, we've been creative, we've had a lot of integrity, we've shown up for others. Now, if nothing comes to mind, no worries. And both recent uh, studies uh, with Brown and Elliott as well as with um, core Buddhist practices, you can imagine these instances. You, they don't actually have to be based on lived experiences. So simply, if nothing comes to mind, just visualize yourself in a situation where you have done or are doing something that is really esteemable that actualizes your highest sense of worth, your sense of value, your sense of agency, your sense of confidence. The second step is then to locate the positive affect in your body while you're visualizing this very positive image to find where you feel really relaxed and good. The third is to enhance and spread that good feeling as wide as you can throughout your body so that you're really, link, you're really creating a positive affect state. And then the fourth is to change the image to just your own image, your self-representation. So now you're directly linking your self-representation with a good feeling in your body. Now this is not at all like those Stuart Smiley affirmations where you look in a mirror and you say, I'm good. That's cognitive. That's simply reciting some words that have absolutely no effect. The bottom-up tools of contemporary emotions-focused therapies, AADP and so forth, work from the body up somatically, and that's what we'll be doing. The body talks directly to the regions of the brain that hold implicit emotional beliefs. So that if you can literally link up your self-image with positive feelings in your body, and you keep doing that, then very, very much faster than you can possibly believe in some research, six months, 
there's a significant change in one's sense of confidence and agency in life. And uh, now let's practice it. All right. So find a comfortable seated position and just, uh, if you need to take a quick stretch or anything, just do so. Get really comfortable in your body. And then find a that upright position where you don't have to put any effort in your back to keep yourself upright. So the, if you have a good sense of balance, just go into that. If you don't, just close your eyes and just weave a little bit from left to right and front to back like a top until you, you let your body come to its own natural stop. And very important is try not to let your head slouch in front of your chest. So try to tilt your head in such a way that it doesn't want to collapse. A good way to do this is just tilt your head slightly back a little bit up like looking at a tall building or whatever, but that's really all the effort. And just the rest is be a process of establishing ease in the body, which is of course very important for tonight's practice. So we'll take just a few breaths just to start the, the process together. Take a nice full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up if you like, holding them up by your ears, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, dropping the shoulders like you're putting down two heavy suitcases and gently, if it feels right for you, gently pull them a little bit back like you're opening up, so you're opening up your chest, making a lot of room to receive the breath. So for the second breath, you can either expand or contract your belly, whichever you want. Just do something with it. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, relax the belly to the most comfortable position. No tension. And for the third in-breath, Squinch the muscles in the face. Tighten the eyes, the brow, the jaw, the everything. Just pinch the nose and then breathe out. And if you're wondering why it shows those three areas, well, those are the, uh, the greatest cluster of a nerve called the vagal vagus nerve, which is where your body expresses emotions and also reports back to your mind the emotional state that you're in. So if you can learn to get into the process of relaxing, opening up the chest, 
softening the belly, relaxing the muscles in the face, you're doing a significant amount of, sending a significant amount of reassuring messages up to the mind saying you're okay, you're safe. And now that we've gotten the body a little bit more relaxed, let's bring attention to how the mind is dispositioned, how it's attending to to our experience. Try to get into that mind state you're in when you reach your favorite place in the world where you you're on a vacation, you've got nothing to do, nowhere to go. You're really, really in a state of arriving at a moment that you've longed for a time where all the momentum of life comes to a stop and just that state of where there's no desire to plan anything for the future to ruminate about anything from the past or fantasize about anything that isn't happening right here and right now because you reached a moment where everything is available where you really can finally arrive in your life nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to take care of. For a little while, we'll just sit in silence and just try to get as close as you can to the actual sensations that are occurring right now. Internally, the feeling of your body breathing, the sensations of the expansion of the chest and the release. movement of energy up and down the body with inhalation and exhalation. The sensation of lights flickering behind closed eyelids.
especially the sensations of sounds, the fan. any other ongoing sensations. And anything that pulls you away from the array of sensory experience that's happening in this moment, any memory, any projection of the future, any conceptual thought, any worrying, anything that pulls you away from these very unique, vibrant, rich sensations that pulls you off into a virtual reality that's very, very separate. Just note and just release back into the sensations that are actually happening right now. If it's difficult to stay fully present, you can count your breaths, one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out, Five in the in-breath, four on the next out-breath, back down to one. So we're counting up to five and back down again over and over again. And when you do get lured away from all the sensations, the contact with the chair, your breathing, energy in the body, sounds, lights behind closed eyelids. Don't feel any frustration or impatience. That's just as much part of the practice, developing a sense of kindness, care, patience, feeling a sense of reward rather than failure when the mind becomes aware it slipped away.
So at this point we're going to move into the second part of the meditation. Hopefully bringing with you some of the ease and uh, stillness that you've cultivated. So I'd like to invite you now to visualize a scene in which you find yourself especially effective, strong, capable, a scene in which you're acting on what you consider to be your truest ideals, the traits that you most admire in yourself and others. So this can be an actual memory of a situation where you were altruistic or creative, where you helped someone or some took care of an animal. some situation where you acted with integrity, or it could be a scene that you visualize, something that expresses what you value the most, an image, a scene that really highlights or depicts really what you find not only most esteemable, but would be the kind of memory that you would look back on your life and make you feel good about your existence. So just bring it to mind, either as an image you create or an image a scene that is actually based on someone you helped, took care of, a project you completed, a, a skill that you learned and developed, any aspirational event. And just really see that scene with as much detail in your mind as you can. And this scene should really create a sense of positive emotional regard, a sense of feeling really good about this event. And while you hold this image in your mind, then allow part of your awareness to lower down into your body and find some area in the throat, the chest, the belly, the hands, somewhere where there's a sense of ease, a sense of strength, a sense of energy flowing, 
without any constraint, where the muscles aren't tight, any place in your body that feels really relaxed and good. Now, if you can find such a place to stay with that, breathe into it, really get a sense of what this ease feels like. If it's difficult right now, then keep playing around with another image, anything that you feel either proud of or something that would exemplify some challenge that you will met in your mind, something that would make you feel really good. Just visualize it and then find the underlying physical sense of comfort. No matter how small, just locate that sense of ease in the body, a sense of energy moving, a sense of muscles relaxing. Now with each in-breath, bring your awareness to this, any sense of ease in your body. And with each out-breath, see if you can slightly spread it. So if it's in your belly, feeling it spread up towards the chest. With the breath, feel it spreading outwards to both sides or down the body. See if you can spread any ease and comfort that you've cultivated. Spread it in your body to make it a fuller state of comfort. And again, if you have to use another image of yourself doing something that was really courageous and strong, something that you feel really proud of, perhaps the most, the action you most feel, the greatest pride, hold that and just find that sense of strength in your body and spread it. The last step in this process, bring to mind why you are aware of this pleasant or strong or easeful feeling in the body. Bring to mind your image, the image of yourself as you might appear in a mirror either today or at any time in the past but some image of yourself that will stand as a representation of you in your mind. 
and just hold that image and feel the sensations of ease and just try to do both with as much focus so there's nothing else in your awareness besides your image and pleasant sensations in the body and just let them linger together. Each time your mind drifts away, just bring it back, finding some comfort in your body, some sense of ease or strength while holding your image in your mind. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl, and as is always the case, I encourage you when you hear the sound not to just open your eyes and look around, but to slowly, very slowly, open your eyes just enough to see the ground in front of you and integrate awareness of light and color and shapes into this awareness of your body. The goal being not to allow sight, which is a very rich sensory medium, to push into the background awareness of your body. 
interoception, you want to maintain a very strong sense of interoception to continue this work for the rest of your life.